Welcome to the Laser Therapy Institute weekly podcast, the world's first podcast about medical laser therapy for healthcare providers. Each week, we discuss the latest research, interviews with experts, and how laser therapy can enhance your practice. Now, here is the founder of LTI and your host, Dr. Jason Roundtree. Hey, welcome back to the Laser Therapy Institute weekly podcast. My name is Dr. Jason Roundtree, and I'm excited to have you here for part two of Alzheimer's. If you have not heard part one yet, please go back to last week's episode, listen to that. It gives you some framework from which I'm talking about Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Last week, we really talked about a couple of the factors in Alzheimer's disease, including the formation of amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. We talked about the status of where we're at with Alzheimer's here in the U.S., the costs of taking care of Alzheimer's patients and caretakers, as well as the very controversial new drug that's been rammed through the FDA, even though it has not been shown to work. If you listen to that, you'll get a little sense of why I'm so frustrated with how we handle healthcare here in the U.S., and this is going to be a little bit less of that this week. So we're skipping over that this week to go straight to the details on the study that I referred to last week. And again, I'll give you that uh, reference here. The The title of the study is Photobiomodulation for Alzheimer's Disease, Translating Basic Research to Clinical Application. This was published in March of 2020 in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. And last week I gave you some of the research data that showed results both in animal and human trials that has been done. And in those trials that were cited in this paper, uh, we were seeing very significant improvements in cognitive function, reaction speed, both with animal models and, like I said, humans as well. And in the animal models, that's where they have shown that photobiomodulation or light therapy can actually decrease these amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles that are associated with Alzheimer's cases and that are really the target of the new drug, Aduhelm. Aduhelm, if you haven't looked into that, do a little bit of research, look into that drug. It has been shown to somewhat decrease these amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, which are associated with Alzheimer's disease, but it hasn't actually been shown to change quality of life or performance, mental performance, for those suffering with Alzheimer's. Whereas in this particular paper, referring back to photobiomodulation, again, a low cost, completely side effect free treatment, we're seeing not only reduction in amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, at least in the animal models, but also mental performance improvements in humans. Some of those performance improvements occurring after just one therapy session. Now, I have to say here that I am not giving you license to treat Alzheimer's disease with laser, okay? That's that's not what this is about. Again, laser therapy in the United States, at least, is typically only cleared to be used with painful conditions. And you have to work within your scope. So I'm not trying to override any guidance that's out there now. I'm just bringing you this research information And what I hope to see in the near future is more and more studies published showing how effective photobiomodulation, light therapy, laser therapy can be with these patients, not only for these mental acuity and performance improvements that that this paper reports, but also in how it can diminish amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles associated with this long-term chronic degenerative memory disease. So again, it's on you to remain compliant. 
But this is potentially really great stuff, and we should be, as a nation, spending money to research this, maybe even instead of some of these drugs that haven't even been proven to work, that can cost $56,000 a year to administer with major side effects. It should make us think about what we're doing and how we're spending our money on healthcare, at least here in the U.S. All right, you want to hear me rant more about that? Go back to last week's episode. I'll move on now, I promise. So a big portion of this study is said in the last half of the title where it says, translating basic research to clinical application. Now we know from the basic research that you can see improvements in performance, mental performance with memory patients. What recommendations does this paper make for utilizing this basic research in a clinical setting. What this paper ends up giving us is most of a protocol for utilizing photobiomodulation therapy with Alzheimer's patients. And so I'll go through that piece by piece with you, but there's many things you have to look at when you're looking at designing and then carrying out a photobiomodulation protocol. The first thing we're gonna look at is the application of the light. Where do you put the light to have the effects you want? We're then gonna look at wavelengths, then we're gonna look at dose, we're gonna look at pulsing the light, the irradiance, the treatment area, and the treatment frequency. We're gonna go through those one at a time. So first, where do you put the light? You take whatever your light source is, where are you gonna put it? Well, you might be thinking right off the bat, well, I can't put it right on the skull, I can't put it right on their head because it can't go through bone. Hmm, well, you're not quite correct there. It can go right through bone. But we're going to discuss three separate methods that are outlined in this paper for having an effect on the brain with light. And one effect is to use the light on a circulation-rich zone where you have blood flow very close to the surface of the body, such as the axillary area, the wrist, and the groin. And the reasoning behind that is that Utilizing light on those circulation-rich areas can have downstream effects that have been proven in the research to have positive effects on memory disorders and Alzheimer's-like disease. They say, considering that blood has been observed to contain circulating, cell-free, respiratory-competent mitochondria, and photobiomodulation also increases regional blood flow, not just localized blood flow, but regional blood flow, a secondary mechanism might allow the transportation of the beneficial effects of photobiomodulation beyond the limits of direct light penetration. Now, I've already done an entire podcast on these circulating, cell-free, respiratory-competent mitochondria. If you want to hear some more about that, it's highly, highly interesting research. We'll drop a link to that episode in the show notes. But essentially, you've got these little cell-free mitochondrion that are floating around, and they can function as intracellular signalers, or intercellular signalers, and we aren't quite sure what they do in the circulating blood, they may be linked to these more whole body effects that are seen when you have photobiomodulation therapy used on these circulation-rich zones. So, not even working directly on the skull, in this case working on blood flow itself to have downstream effects. That's, that's location number one then. Location number two is where the bone, the long bones specifically, are close to the surface of the body. And utilizing light therapy on those bones to mobilize and energize stem cells. One of the studies included 
in this review stated that weekly treatments with photobiomodulation applied to the bone marrow of Alzheimer's disease mice increased the ability of stem cells to phagocytize amyloid beta proteins within the brain, which led to improved cognitive function and spatial learning after total treatment duration of two months. Now, they do go on to say that's a little bit outside the scope of what we're talking about here, and that's just one isolated study, but it's still interesting to think about utilizing light to mobilize stem cells from the bone marrow, which then can benefit an entirely different region and different tissues of the body. Okay, so that's one and two. Number three is working directly on the skull. And the researchers say that you need to take advantage of the optical tissue window, which allows wavelengths of light between approximately 650 nanometers and 1200 nanometers to travel through skin and skull transcranially. That means you're getting light to transmit right through those barriers straight to the brain. Now we'll come back to the wavelengths they mentioned there in just a minute but applying the right kind of light to the skull can reach the brain, at which point then you have to transmit light into the brain tissues themselves. And they say that delivering the light over the occiput allows the highest amount of energy to enter the brain. Now, how much actually gets to the brain after you go through the hair, the skin, the skull, the blood flow, the dura, and so forth? Well, they say that about half a percent to five percent of the emitted light from a one watt laser with a wavelength of 810 nanometers was transmitted transcranially. So very little will make it through. And we'll come back to this in a minute when we talk about power and dose. But you're not gonna get a huge amount of light through the skull. Is it possible? Absolutely. You'll get the most penetration depth through the occipital area. And again though, this comes back to the right color of light, the right kind of light. That's where we talk about wavelength, which has already been mentioned a couple of times, and the researchers here say that 810, 830, and 800 nanometers seems to penetrate the best. There is some evidence, too, that 633 visible red can also penetrate in combination with other laser, but we don't have as much information about that yet. Once the light does get through the skull, then the further depth of penetration is limited by the optical properties of brain tissue, and light with longer wavelengths can penetrate deeper into the tissue. And that's where we're talking about light that is at the 980 or 1064 nanometer wavelength that seems to penetrate even deeper into brain tissue. The problem is getting it through the skull. So here we can see a combination of wavelengths might be the most beneficial, not only to get penetration through the skull to the brain, but then into the brain tissues themselves. The real point there is if you're not using the right color of light, the right kind of light, you won't get the penetration through the skull and into the brain that you need to to have the effects on that brain tissue. You've got to use the right kind of light. So somewhere in the 800 to 810 nanometers is going to have your best penetration through the skull. And as far as getting into the rest of the brain tissues, once you get through the skull, a little bit longer wavelengths around that 970, 980, uh, up to about 1064 can get further down into the brain. But remember, you're only gonna be delivering uh, you know, less than 5% of the light to the surface of the brain, let alone deeper into the brain itself. Now the next piece we're gonna to go to is dose. What kind of dose do you need to use with your light therapy to have a positive effect? 
Well, they say that summing up the available body of research on photobiomodulation to the brain, the application time should be long enough to achieve a dose in the minimum effective range of between 5 and 10 joules per centimeter squared at the level of the cortex. Therefore, considering the exponential energy decrease during transcranial application, energy densities between 25 and 60 joules should be applied to the scalp. So essentially, you want to aim for 60 joules per centimeter squared to provide that actual therapeutic dose on the surface of the cortex. The next piece of the protocol that these researchers are suggesting talks about pulse. And they say that pulsing the light tends to have improved results. They say that many studies found pulse light to be more effective than continuous wave light, or just light that's continuously on. They say memory processes are most closely related to oscillations with theta and gamma frequencies at 6 and 40 hertz, while attention seems closely associated with alpha and gamma oscillations at 10 and 40 hertz. And that pulsed light at alpha and gamma frequencies, which is at 10 and 40 hertz, elicited a positive effect on the brain in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. So right there they recommend pulsing over continuous wave. However, if you're going to pulse your light, the fact that you have to turn the light off for about half the time, typically, means that you're going to double your treatment time. So it's going to make it more lengthy to deliver that 60 joules per centimeter squared. The next piece is the strength of the light. That is measured in irradiance. Irradiance is calculated by taking the power of the light in watts and dividing it by the area you're treating in centimeters squared. That gives you the irradiance. And the irradiance that these researchers are recommending is up to 250 milliwatts per centimeter squared. Now that is not simply power. Again, that is a relationship between power and the spot size, the area that is being illuminated. And a very weak laser down to a tiny spot size can give you that 250 milliwatts per centimeter squared, or a more powerful class four laser pushing say 20 watts can still deliver that same irradiance of 250 milliwatts using a larger spot size, which is what you'll find on the class four clinical laser therapy units out there. A lot of times are gonna be 30, 40, 50 millimeter spot sizes. So let's review what we know right now. As far as application locations, the skull is a valid target. Specifically, the occipital area seems to transmit the most light to the brain. The next piece is wavelength, and you should be using a wavelength in the 800 to 810 nanometer range for the best penetration, while the best conductivity through the brain is somewhere between that 970 to maybe 1064 range. The next factor is pulse, and they say that pulsing the light at 6, 10, or 40 hertz could be more effective than continuous wave light. Further, they recommend an irradiance of 250 milliwatts per centimeter squared or less. Now, what they do not cover is how much of the skull should be treated and how often it should be treated to have good results. I will not presume to give you the answers to those other than to say a couple of general things. And that is the larger region you can treat, the more likely your results are to be good. 
when you have a tiny treatment region, it is very easy to not illuminate the areas that need to be illuminated. So the larger the area you treat, generally, the better results you should have. Regarding how frequently you should treat, that one is a little tougher to say, but many studies see very good benefits from three times a week, whereas working over a longer period of time, one or two times a week can be very beneficial for maintaining and sustaining positive effects. And the last little bit that I want to bring in that comes from outside the study is that we know from other research that if you have more power and a larger spot size, you get more of the light through the skull. In other words, if you're using a 100 milliwatt laser on a half a square centimeter spot, that penetration will be less than if you use a 20 watt laser with a 40 millimeter spot, even if the wavelength of the light is the same. So if you're looking at an area that's hard to get to, like the brain, you have to get through the skull, you wanna maximize penetration, you go for a larger spot size with higher power, you will get more light through the skull. And if you're concerned about the power behind class four lasers that work in the 10, 12, 20, 60 watt range, I wanna reassure you that the spot sizes on these devices do allow you to maintain that lower irradiance so where it is safe to use and should be effective as well. And further, using those larger spot sizes, higher power, enabling you to get better penetration through the brain should help you get better results, should also help you deliver faster treatments because it's quicker to reach that 60 joule per centimeter squared recommended dose and allow you to treat a larger area of the skull. So if you don't want to have to sit somewhere with a helmet of LEDs on your head to reach this dosage, you know, in many cases, class four lasers can deliver a, an effective treatment within these specifications within less than 10 minutes. Now, in closing, again, I am not here to tell you you need to be treating your Alzheimer's patients' heads with laser. I, I'm simply relating what we know at this point, and I really hope that in the near future, I can bring you more research briefs like this one that are really exciting and are showing good effects of light therapy on really horrible diseases like Alzheimer's. If you want to know more, reach out to us. You can find us on our website at lasertherapyinstitute.org. You can also email me directly, info at lasertherapyinstitute.org. I hope you have a great week in practice. I look forward to your questions and your comments on this topic, and I'll be back again with you here next week. Subscribe now to keep learning about the growing field of laser therapy. Check out our patient-focused podcast, Healing at the Speed of Light, a great resource for your patients. For massive practice growth and improved patient outcomes, become a certified Laser Therapy Institute clinic. Learn how at lasertherapyinstitute.org.